we are going to start a series called Truth Amplified. And we're going to look at the life and the miracles of Jesus. Now, every miracle had a teaching of some sort that went with it. But the miracles themselves are pointing us to something. It's not just Jesus showing us, hey, look what I can do. I'm more powerful than you. I have special powers. I'm a superhero. That's, that's not what he's doing. Okay? And he didn't just show up just, just to help people because, hey, I'm here for a while, so I might as well heal some people and do some stuff. His miracles are strategic. And they show us something far beyond just that he has the power to do this, okay? And so as we go through this, I want you to know that each miracle and each time Jesus does something, everything he did was intentional. Everything he did was completely on purpose, okay? Jesus was never caught off guard. Jesus was never caught unaware or unknowing his responses his, his reactions, his, his being proactive, all of it was on purpose. Jesus said, I do and say nothing of my own accord, but I do only what I see the Father doing. So whatever the Father, his work in the world was, Jesus was the one fulfilling that. And he was strategically only doing what the Father was telling him to do and showing him to do through the Spirit. And so it's not just that he was without sin. It's that his life was completely lived to reveal the truth, <clears throat> to reveal the kingdom of God. In short, his life was there to amplify what God was doing in the world because it was the greatest work this world will ever see. And so it's up to us to understand it. And to be so committed to it that it literally becomes the identity that we are known by in the world. Not that we try to be just good people or better people than other people or, or anything like that. That we are so attached to Christ that that becomes our identity to other people. Did you know the word Christian, when it was first used, was a mocking title that was given? It was used to mock the followers of Jesus. But you know what? You know what it means? It means little Christ. You see, the early church was so, so excited about Jesus and so radically transformed by his power and his presence in their lives that that's all they talked about. And when I say all, you know what I mean. They, they lived their lives. They did their thing. But their lives were so radically attached to Jesus that everything they did was for his glory. Everything, every goal they had was to glorify him or to share him with other people. And the pagan world around them, the pagan Roman world, did not understand this. And they're like, okay, so we got all these little Christs running around because it's all they're about. They just talk about Jesus all the time and their lives are about him and, and they're happy and, and their lives are, are working even though they're not. We're persecuting them, but they don't seem to care. And they started calling them Christians and here's what I love is historically, they're like, Christians are like, little Christ, yeah, that works. That works. I'll, I, will, I will fully accept that title. You want to call me a Christian? I'm good with it. A little Christ. That's my goal in life. And so they took it as a compliment. 
Don't you see that's how the world and the Christian kingdom works? Is what the world thinks is mocking Christianity? He's like, cool. I'm succeeding. If they're calling me a little Christ, then that means that's, they're seeing Christ in me. I'm happy about that. I will accept that title. And so this morning, to help us kind of get there and amplifying that kind of truth in our lives, we're going to be looking in John 1 and 2 at Jesus, the Word made flesh. Because John gives us in the early part of his gospel here insight into who Jesus is and what he is doing, why he's doing it, and he gives us the lens, and I mean this, this is the lens through which we are to interpret and translate everything Jesus does in his book, and we can apply it to the other gospels too. We're we're not going to, through this series, we're not going to be exclusively in John, but this is the lens through which we're going to look at everything that Jesus does. Because John wants us to get this right, right out of the gate. And so he doesn't start with, you know, genealogy like Matthew. He doesn't start where the others start or, you know, like Luke. Hey, here's an orderly account of the history that happened right here. He goes straight for the heart of what matters the most. And he has a very poetic and a very powerful prologue to his gospel in John chapter 1. So look with me in John 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. And he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now what John wants us to see here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. This may be the greatest paradox that is nonetheless true in the entire world that has ever happened. 
okay? There is no greater paradox to embrace in life or existence than the paradox that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man at the same time. You ask how that's possible? Well, let's just think about this for a second. Right out of the gate, John wants to see Jesus for who he is. He doesn't want us to see him as just another prophet in the line of prophets. He wants to see him as the logos of God. That's the Greek word here for word. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. That is the expressed reason, existence, and purpose of God in human flesh. The very representation of everything that God is, if you could put that in human flesh, that's who Jesus is. And guess what? We couldn't do it, but God can. And it isn't just his teaching he wants us to know. This is where we've got to make a leap with Jesus. It's not just about his teaching. He wants us to know, but the very person and identity of Jesus is also important. His teaching and his identity, his existence and his pre-existence in eternity all wrap up together. And in fact, Jesus' teachings don't make any sense if he's not God and man at the same time. Now, yes, this series, we're going to be diving off into the deep end in some places. Okay? And that's okay. We need to do this sometimes. And we begin with the deep truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Why is it important that we understand this? Because his teachings find their origin, purpose, and power in who he is. You see, if Jesus isn't who John says he is here, then the teachings of Jesus become nonsensical. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That makes no sense for a fully human person to say that. But if he's human and God, he's telling you there's something special about his very existence that we have to attach ourselves to. That we must become a Christian, a little Christ, that we are so committed to it, we are so radically attached to it, that it becomes a part of our identity as well. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then his teachings are meaningless nonsense. And we only have those two choices. Jesus is either who he said he was, and if he is, then he's the most important person who ever existed. And his teachings, his existence, everything have a profound and will have a profound impact on your life for all eternity and can be nothing else. Or he isn't who he said he was, and his teachings mean absolutely nothing, and all of us are wasting our time in here. It's either or. There can be no middle ground here. And so when we look at Jesus in Scripture, we see teachings. Now think of this. That shocked those who heard it. His teachings shocked people. At multiple levels. Some are shocked and ecstatic because they've been searching for this truth their whole life. And they're celebrating like, here it is. They're the people who represent the, the seekers of truth who found what they were looking for. Then you have those that are shocked in unbelief. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Guess what? Those are the people who can't understand that God can become a man whenever he wants. And they get his teaching from the divine point, but they're looking at it going, but you're a man. 
this doesn't make sense. How can you teach this? And then there are the people that are just offended by it because, well, Jesus represents truth and those who live in lies and define themselves by lies will always despise the truth. So we see truth that shocked those who heard it, miracles that defied reason. And that's what we're going to look at, miracles that actually defied all reason and logic and scientific evidence. I've once heard somebody say, falsely, okay, incorrectly, that God is the creator of the rules of the universe and must therefore himself abide by those rules. No. He's the creator of those rules of those universe, and so if he wants to show himself as God, what's it natural for him to do? I'm going to do things outside the rules that I set for all of you. I'm going to do things that you're going to scratch your head and say, how is that even possible? You see, we like to start thinking of our existence as kind of a closed system. The laws of physics, the laws of gravity, you know, they just don't break. They don't even bend. Gravity has yet to fail. If I step off this stage, I'm going to fall. And I can do it a million times, and I'm going to fall a million times. And yet, what do we find? We find Jesus walking on water. Laws of physics mean nothing to him. And it's not just a magic trick. It's him showing who he is, that he lives outside of this and has a power that is not limited by what we are limited by. And so he had miracles that defied reason. And then he had a connection to people from all walks of life. He didn't come to one just one group of people specifically. Yes, his ministry happened in first century Israel and to the Jewish people, but that, there's a long story behind that. But it wasn't just intended for them. As we know, we're all here. If it was only intended for them, we wouldn't be here right now. And so Jesus is connecting with, with everybody. He's connecting with, with women, with men, with minorities, with, with everybody. And yet, there's more people that rejected him than accepted him. But they rejected him. So we've got to look at this picture that's being painted in Scripture of Jesus as something is very, very different here. Because no single person has altered the course of world history as much as Jesus Christ has. And yet, the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the most detailed accounts of his life that we have. Jesus wrote nothing down himself. He didn't organize an army, conquered no lands. And yet 2,000 years later, he is the center of all world history. He lived only 33 years. And yet, our Redeemer lives. You see, Jesus is a paradox. Because if he's fully man, then he's limited. If he's fully God, then how could we have known him as a person? We, we've got to take these two concepts, slam them together, and say Jesus is absolutely unique. And so for someone that important, we need to understand not only his teachings, but his identity his life, his purpose, and put it all together to see that every miracle, every teaching forced people to ask, who is this man? Every time he did something, it was people were going, how is this possible? Who is this person? Now, there was a small group of people in his on earth would say, I'll tell you who he is. 
is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Chosen One. And even they didn't quite understand who he was. And so it was the constant refrain from the lowest to the highest person. Some readily confessed who he was, but most refused to believe despite seeing miracle after miracle with their own eyes. And so with that in mind, let's list what John says very quickly about Jesus here. And this is not exhaustive, but here are nine things that John just that he kind of captures in, in John 1, 1 through 18. One, he was in the beginning. Now, what does this sound like? When he starts in the beginning, what is John talking about? He's going back to Genesis. He's saying, hey, look, our circle, our story has come full circle here. In the beginning, every person who was a Jewish mindset or knew anything about God is automatically thinking Genesis 1 one. And so your mind automatically wants to uh, fill in the blank. What is that? In the beginning, God... Look at see, you know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he, he does this brilliant thing here where he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And every mind will stop and go, Oh, wait a minute. Wait, something else is happening. You see, he is co-eternal with the Father, which means Jesus is not a created being. At no point was Jesus created. He's always been. He is a part of the great I Am. Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, welcome to another paradox of the Christian faith. Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed, did not come from anywhere. Their very existence is self-sustaining and is the very definition of existence. That's why God gave the name I Am. Because he needs nothing else to exist. God didn't come from anywhere because he is existence. He is life. But John calls him the Word. He says he was the Word. The second thing, the Logos, the expressed reason of God. You see, life has a funny way of organizing, right? We see it in ourselves. We see it in ourselves. Every, it's about organization. Everything kind of works. Everything has a purpose. Everything works without even being forced to work. What do we see? We see in creation. We see the sun rising every day. We see the sun setting every day. There's this organization about it. There's reason behind it. And he's saying, you want to know the reason of God? Look at the word. Look at Jesus. And then he says he was with God. Do you feel him building here? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is as bold a statement as any first century Jewish author could ever make. Okay? I understand people would have wanted to stone and kill him immediately reading those words if they don't understand who Jesus is. Which means John made far more enemies than he made friends in the moment that he wrote this. And you know what? He knew what he was writing and he was glad to write it. And why? Because it's true. And he didn't care that the world was going to hate what he just said. He said it anyway and he's, because it was true. And then he says, in case you're missing the point, he keeps going. Number four, all things were created through him. He was God's agent in creation. 
The father spoke. The son made it happen. How does that work? I don't know. He doesn't explain it. Don't you love there are things that he's just like, hey, this happened. You're like, but that's really cool, God. How did it happen? He says, yeah, you don't need to know. You'll, I'll tell you that later. Just know it happened. It happened through him. And, and so he says nothing that's been made was made without going through him. So all of creation exists because of the work of the Father and the Son in creation. So thus, what does this tell us about Jesus himself? He is Lord over creation itself. Lord over creation. Then he says he is the light of man that shines in the darkness. He is the lone light in a world of darkness to which we, as humanity, as those created in the image of God, can see the truth. Don't mistake this. He is the only one who is shining a light that is true. Every other light in this world that does not come from Jesus is a false light that will lead you to death. He is the light of man that shines in the darkness. And he says the darkness has not overcome him. What a great statement. He came to a world of darkness, shined his light, and the, the, the darkness threw everything it had at him and couldn't beat him. Seven, to those who receive him, he makes the children of God. To those who receive him, he makes children of God. What was his purpose for coming? To make children of God. And how? By faith. That's the point. He is the light that shines the truth. He is God himself. And if you receive him, you become a child of God. He is the one and only son of God. There is none other like him. Jesus is the only one that is truly, truly unique in the world. Yes, each of us has our own unique fingerprint and unique DNA. But you know what? That DNA was built off the DNA of others. So families can be identified Family traits get passed along. How many of you can go back and look at old, old family pictures and you're like, yep, they're, they're related. My family, I, I didn't get it, but in Smith family, we got these ears that just like go out like this. They pass along. All kinds of people got them <laughs> in our family. You see those traits, but what does he say? He says that he is the one and only son of God, which means the traits of God are what we should be looking for. And then nine, a very important statement says he is full of grace and truth. He did not come to condemn the world. He didn't come to, to destroy the world. He didn't come to punish the world. He came to give grace and truth and to make people children of God. Now what is grace? It's favor. It's God's unearned, undeserved favor. And that's what Jesus was full of. He just gave favor to people who didn't deserve it. To all of us. And so we could spend months just going through and parsing out John 1. Trust me, there are entire volumes of literature written just on John 1. But that's not the point here, so we've got to move on. Because what John says here is some of the most important words written in human history. He's telling us up front what we need to know about Jesus if we are to understand him and his teachings and put our faith in him. You see, his words are not a magic spell that if we just kind of do A, then B happens, and we're devoid. No, we have to attach ourselves to him. 
and he is the one who is important. His teachings are a part of who he is, and so his identity, his teachings, all of it, we have to understand that properly as he is God. His life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and his promised return must all be understood through the lens of what John just told us about him. Because John told us, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is both human and divine. He is God. He is the God-man, both fully God and fully man at the same time. And only because Jesus made the choice to make this happen did it happen. Jesus stepped out on his own to do this. He was sent by the Father, but it was also the will of the Son to do it because Father, Son, and Spirit are all together. There is no friction between them. One's will is the other's will, all submitting and all glorifying each other for all eternity. It's amazing. Amen. And it's something to think about. It really is. And so the Son came to earth as a man. And everything that he did shows us both the truth of his divinity and his humanity. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now that idea of grasp is held on to. He didn't hold on to it for himself. What did he do? Verse 7, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what does it mean? That he emptied himself. Himself. Nothing else could do this. Nobody could force this. Nobody could make this happen. This could only happen through a voluntary act of the Son. What does it mean he emptied himself? It means he set aside his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. Okay? Being all-powerful, being all-knowing, being all-present through all of time, all at the same time, he set all of that aside so that he could be located in space and time as a human being. Now imagine going from being all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present being located in space and time, feeling hot and cold, being hungry, feeling pain, and having the limited capacity to know in your mind when you were once all-knowing. He set all of that aside. Now, did that make him any less God? No, because he did not set aside his divine nature or his holiness. Because the divine nature and his holiness could still exist in space and time. Everything that could not happen within a human, he went ahead and emptied himself of. He says, I'll, I will set that aside for now. So when we talk about Jesus' death on the cross as horrible and as painful and as much suffering as happened on the cross, think about what it took for God to empty himself of his God power and come to earth. For people who hated him. Yeah. You see, the life of Jesus isn't just a, a wonderful story of a person who exemplified love and service and, and sacrifice. 
This was the author of creation stepping into his own story. Becoming a character in his own story that he has written. And so when we look at Jesus, when we think of Jesus, when we read of Jesus, when we study Jesus, when we praise Jesus, we are in fact praising the God of creation and acknowledging that he came as a man who walked the earth in the first century Jewish world. But you know what? That's not all. Jesus himself amplified the truth of his identity. And he did it in unique ways. Because like I said, he didn't come and lead a revolution. He didn't come and conquer the Roman Empire and say, okay, now everybody listen because I'm in charge now. He did it a different way. And he did it in a way that nobody could understand until after it happened. Even the disciples nearing his life, everybody's scratching their head going, what's this about? I get that you're, I, I, I believe you are the son of God, but we're homeless. And we're not conquering the world. What's what are we doing here? But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was building a kingdom that was unlike any worldly kingdom. He wasn't building a worldly kingdom. He's building an eternal kingdom, and he's still building it. If you are born again, you are a part of that kingdom. And you serve that kingdom. And so with all of this in mind, what would you expect God as a man to do on earth if he didn't come to conquer and build an earthly kingdom. That would be kind of a limited scope, right? Okay, you're not here to take down bad government. You're not here to, to fix every problem that we have. You're not here to tell us we're awesome, but you're also not here to, to destroy us. What are you here to do? To build my kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, an eternal kingdom. It's going to be unlike anything that you have known. You see, if he came only to teach, then he would have written down everything so that we could study it and know him better and follow the teaching. But it's not just about the teaching. It's about him. You see, Jesus showed up on the scene, and what did he tell people? He says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you know what everybody did when they heard that? And I'm not kidding. In the first century, all of a sudden, Where? And Jesus is like, right here. Kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it is starting. And, and they're like, but the Romans are still in charge. They're, they're, there's still all this stuff happening. I, we, we don't have a, 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 a descendant of David on the throne. And What's going on? I don't understand. How can you say the kingdom of God is at hand? And he's like, because it's standing right in front of you. Because the kingdom would be based on him as a person. Not a political movement, not an organization, not as we think of a kingdom, but it's him, literally. And so wherever he moved on earth, there's where the kingdom of God was. Now what happened after he was resurrected, the Holy Spirit came, and that's when everything changed. Because now the kingdom of God is wherever the spirit of God is. And where is the spirit of God? On his church. And we are building the kingdom of God. It's not our kingdom. We just play a role in it. But we are building the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will have no end. So his miracles and his teachings, in fact, his very existence, amplifies this. And the first miracle that John records is found in John 2 and points to this very thing. 
Okay, so we're going over to John chapter 2 now, starting in verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now that's faith. She was completely undeterred. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. That's a weird command when you run out of wine. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John calls this the first of his signs. Not a miracle, but a sign. It is a miracle, but John calls it a sign. Why? Because they point to the bigger picture of who he is. They aren't isolated incidents where Jesus performs some kind of magic trick to get attention. They are signs that amplify the truth about who he is and what he's doing and what the result will be. When we understand the miracles as signs, we learn to dig a little, little deeper, ask the right questions, and find the truth that is life-changing. So if Jesus is who John says he is in chapter 1, what do we expect out of a sign? If he is, in fact, the Son of God through whom the world was created, we would expect to see signs that show he is Lord over creation, right? Is altering the very physical state of matter instantly expressing a lordship over creation? I think so. I think that checks the box. You see, he was not bound by the rules of this world. We would see signs that point towards the kingdom that he is building and signs that he is the light of man, is full of grace and truth. And in this miracle, we see just that. He turns water into wine without any fanfare. He doesn't wave his hand over it. He doesn't give some kind of amazing prayer and ask God to do it. He just fills it up with water and says, take some out and give it to him. When they give it to him, it's wine. You know that person was confused out. This is going to be fun. I'm about to give this guy some water, and we're going to have a real situation because what's often misunderstood in today's world, there was a legal situation involved here. To run out of wine at a wedding like this for the guests, they literally could be put in jail. You throw a, See, the Jewish world in the first century took their party seriously. You're going to throw a party. It better be a good party, and this is a seven-day party. Now imagine Thanksgiving lasting for seven days, and it's your responsibility to feed everybody for those seven days. You see, we do one day, and we're like, everybody go. <laughs> I'm broke, that's too much food, and we're, we're done. Seven days of this. And so when they run out, everybody, I mean, there's tension in the air. What are we going to do? Because this isn't just socially embarrassing, it's legally embarrassing. 
a problem now. And what does Jesus do? Literally, he saves them. He gives them grace. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't lecture them about, hey, you really need to learn to count your people and your days a little bit better. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He's like, yeah, just fill it up with water, take it over to him. And in the meantime, it's changed. You see, he gives them grace and truth. He checks the box of being Lord over creation. He saves them. And there's an added thing at the end here. The nature of the new wine is so stunning that it reveals that Jesus is bringing something so new, so powerful, so different that it cannot be compared to anything that came before it. He's not just another in a line of things that God has done. He is the fulfillment of everything that God was pointing to. And it's at such a new level, it's such a higher level, that you can't compare it to anything that came before. And so the host says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, what God is telling us through this is that everything that happened in the Old Testament was just a preview of coming attractions. The show has now begun. The truth is on the scene. The author himself has stepped into his story. And so I say all of this to ask, how is Jesus amplified in your life? When you think of Jesus, do you just think of a friend? Do you think of a cosmic Santa Claus who's there to take care of your problems, give you what you need? Do you think of the, the one who will forgive you and died for you and, and his grace just covers everything? Or do you think of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all that has been created? You know, I was thinking about it as I, as I was preparing this and even just while we were singing. I want you to think of every picture you know, have ever seen, artist rendition, whatever, every artistic rendition of Jesus you've ever seen. How many of them show people genuinely bowing in reverence to the king? Not many. We'll talk, you know, we have these wonderful pictures, and they're, and they're true. I'm not knocking them, that Jesus holding people up, people welcoming people in, of, of Jesus teaching people, of, of Jesus kind of restoring people. I mean, there, there's so many wonderful depictions and Bible stories that people have used. And yet, how many pictures do we honestly see where people try to reflect the genuine kingship and power of Jesus, of Lord over all creation? See, if we aren't thinking of Jesus in those terms, we're selling him short. He deserves more. And it's not just that he deserves more. We won't understand how he's working, and we won't engage in what he wants us to engage in if we don't fully respect who he is. We'll take him too lightly. And when we take Jesus too lightly, we're in trouble. Because we won't take his words lightly and then we, you know, and we'll just kind of take his forgiveness for granted and, and all kinds of things. And, and we will lessen the value of the cross in our lives. And so when you pray, are you seeking his kingdom or seeking to have him establish your kingdom? And think about it. 
So many times we pray and we're asking God for stuff and for things, for things to work out, for things to go the way we want them to go, when really that's more establishing our kingdom. Hey, God, make my life work the way I think it should work. What did Jesus say? He says, when you pray, say this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The Jesus teaches to pray, and he says one of the first things you better understand is who's in charge here. And your prayers need to reflect that. How is Jesus amplified in your life? Because we must. This is one. There is no room for error here. Okay, there's no room for error on this. We either get it right or we're completely wrong. We have to make sure we're following Jesus for his kingdom, his glory, his renown, and not our own. See, a lot of people say the name of Jesus and claim the name of Jesus and, and try to claim the power of Jesus and then try to use Jesus to build their own kingdom. And Jesus had something to say about this. He says, not all who call me Lord will enter into heaven. You see, Jesus even admits there are people who are not going to get this. And here's what Paul has to say about this. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. We must seek Jesus as Lord of all. We must bend our knee to him, bend our will to him, and acknowledge him as Lord of all creation, above everything else. That what he says goes and that I don't have rights in the kingdom of God. I relinquished all control of my life when I accepted him as Lord and Savior of my life. I gave him up. Now here's the good news. What do we find in Jesus? Life, grace, truth. The fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. You see, it's, he, he knows us and he's like, no, I will take care of you, but you will do it my way. And God will not compromise on that. And so how is God amplified in your life? And then, very quickly to close, how is he amplified with us? And when I say us, as Grace Family Fellowship in 2024, how are we amplifying Jesus Christ to the world? Because Jesus made us a promise in this. In John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now notice who's doing the drawing and where they're going. It's our job to lift up Jesus. And guess what? They're not going to come to us. They can go to him. And that's what we want. This isn't about Grace Family Fellowship. This is about Grace Family Fellowship lifting up Jesus so Jesus draws people to himself. Now how do we know when we're successfully doing that? We see people getting saved. We see that Baptist pool filled regularly. Because people have heard the truth, they have found life, and they are transformed. And that is all of our jobs. That is all of our jobs. That's not just my job as a pastor. That is all of our jobs. I need to be telling people about Jesus. You need to be telling people about Jesus. That's why we have the 4 by 4 cards that we have to help remind us. It's not a gimmick. It's just a reminder that we need to be about the kingdom of God in our lives and sharing him with others. However we can. It'll look different for different people. You don't have to be a salesman. But how are we doing it? 
And so this week, ask yourself, how is the lordship of Jesus Christ, creator of heaven and earth, amplified in my life? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, we just thank you that we get to serve your king. God, we thank you that you started this work. And God, that we get to be a part of this eternal kingdom and movement, God, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. That nothing can stop it. And God, I pray as we go through this series, looking at how you, Lord Jesus, amplified the truth of who you are. God, help us to see what that matters in our own lives, how that matters. Not so that we can just say we have the right answer, but God, you, you are the truth. Lord Jesus, you are the truth, and the truth sets free. I pray that lives are transformed as we draw near to you, as you are lifted up, and that your kingdom would be glorified and would grow. God, we pray this together. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, amen.